I'm Ian Rowlands. And I'm Colin Williams. And welcome to Beneath the Stream, a podcast about the human experience in the non-human world. And uh, Colin, I wanted to pick up really on, um, I guess it's a a bugbear of mine, really. Um, That when we read a newspaper or listen to the news, there's a really curious thing that we, we see virtually no stories about the bulk of life on the planet from its perspective. It's always the human perspective on that. Um, so other than what's happening and how the non-human affects humans, or occasionally what we're doing to the non-human, the natural world, now I guess that's forgivable because we like to read stories about ourselves or other people. Uh, and yet more ancient human cultures told stories, yes, about themselves and their ancestors, but just as much also about the creatures, the life forms, the land, the spirits, the non-human relatives that made up the bulk of their world. And I feel that most modern Western humans, we kind of turned our back on that tradition, that perspective, and have headed off down a road where we're disconnecting from the natural world. I guess a road that many of us feel probably isn't going to end too well. Um, so I thought it'd be wonderful if we could talk to somebody whose profession it is to tell stories about how we relate, how we fit, how we reconnect with the natural world. Uh, so I'm delighted that we're joined by Gillian Burke, a TV presenter, a biologist, a storyteller, a, a multifaceted, multi-talented person who can give our insights into how she tackles that task of being a storyteller. So Gillian, welcome to Beneath the Stream. Hi, thanks so much for having me. God, that's quite um, a very thoughtful introduction, isn't it? Um, you know, in terms of how we relate, how we tell stories why the disconnect you know that's a you know that's a question i keep coming back to like you know we talk so much about feeling disconnected from nature and you know i'm like well, why when did it happen you know <laughs> how long have we been living like this you know <laughs> so i just launched straight in haven't i <laughs> that's, that's fine because because what what really struck me when i was sort of digging around doing some research i've watched you on tv is is you're a really multifaceted person. You've got many strands. Well, we all have many strands, but they really shine in you. But it seems that a strand that runs through um, is this natural gift you have for communicating and storytelling. Uh, and so I wondered about how, how do you bring all those strands together? How do you approach telling your audiences about things that you're passionate about, especially when often it's quite technical? Wow, yeah. Um... Well, first of all, it's incredibly flattering. <laughs> you know, like, oh, a gift. Um, <laughs> do you know what? Um, it's taken me a really long time to think, like, right, I've got to, you know, how do I sort of communicate something that I've, you know, been really, really passionate about, which is, and, you know, I don't even want to call it the natural world because, you know, we, I think a lot of people say this now, we make this distinction, the human world, the natural world, it is the world, it is, you know, this is home, this is where we live. And, um, you know, and I, I, I use that word home a lot, because I find that it, um, it helps me go down a different path, you know, in terms of how am I going to sort of, you know, communicate what I'm trying, the way I see things, and the way I feel about my home, our home. And I think a lot of it has, it's taken me a long time, like I said, to learn how to pull those strands together because I didn't, um, you know, I think like a lot of people, I didn't think I was allowed to tell stories as a scientist. You know, I kind of went down this road of, um, you know, kind of, you know, various kind of, well, mainstream education, you know, um, got to uni, did biology, and really kind of um, bought into an idea, 
which was you're either an artist or a scientist. But, you know, really the best stories is when you pull those things together into kind of, you know, as you, I thought so beautifully put in that introduction, um, into kind of saying, well, this is the experience of life, you know. And each of us have like a very unique experience of what we call life. And, you know, and I think that's really fascinating, like just on a human level, that every single person has a valid story to tell. You know, every single person does. And then when you kind of extend that beyond human life forms into, you know, animal world, plant world, etc., um, is that every single species um, has a unique solution to how, how you stay alive. So, you know, so from that point of view, I think, well, wow, then that means like every single species, every single life form has a valid story to tell because it's all about staying alive. The highs, the lows, the triumphs, you know, the, you know, the loss, every single species goes through that. So for me, that's kind of, you know, it, it makes it relatable for me. And then I hope it makes it relatable for other people. I really like it's something you've said that's going to stick with me strongly there, which is like every every organism every species has a right to have its story told and i was thinking there's almost enough people on the planet aren't there that we can nominate everybody to be that species ambassador that advocate and that's what i love about certain scientists is that they can be studying something really tiny and it may they make it their life work to tell the story of that creature uh, and i'm going to quote back something you said about yourself so you'll enjoy this uh, you <laughs> said you said i used to enjoy reading a research paper and being able to explain it to my friends I hope to help people understand that with the right language and presented in the right way, anyone can understand science. Yeah, so I did a biology degree, and my, um, you know, I've never been, I've never been one of these people that has like this laser sharp focus. I know exactly what I want to do in my life. You know, um, I have, and still do. You know, I haven't let go. For example, of the dream of being a singer, like in a band you know maybe maybe a backing vocalist because i think the pressure of being a lead vocalist too much but you know oh my gosh being a back so you know there are things i still kind of think you know <laughs> at some point i'm gonna have to you know admit defeat but i'm still going with that one it's, it's only a matter um, of time julian <laughs> yeah i'm just dropping this here in case someone's listening who yeah wants colin's, to sign a, on colin's a musician he, he understands <laughs> <Yeah>. that yeah <laughs> Yeah, so you know, I don't, you know, I've, I'm always sort of like thinking, oh, what else? That that looks fun. So I, you know, I sometimes think, is that a strength? Is that a weakness? I don't know. It's getting me through life anyway. Um, but certainly, by the time I got to doing my biology degree, I had um, really, really come close to doing um, drama actually, because I was very into performing arts through a teenager. So my early years, I lived in Kenya, and I was you know, very much like it was just by osmosis. It was just that because, you know, that was the environment I grew up in. Um, I, I lived on the outskirts of Nairobi. So it was just on the edge of an old, well, a coffee plantation. But, you know, the housing estate where I lived was sort of was what was once a coffee plantation. So it wasn't like, you know, out in the bundus, out in the bush or anything, but it was still pretty, um, well, was it rural? It, there was there was still a lot of land that wasn't necessarily managed, you know, small patches, but that was my playground. And I got a bursary to go and do biology because I was actually really good at sciences. Uh, maths, I was appalling at. I flunked it badly. But I was good at chemistry, biology. I never even attempted physics because of the maths thing. Um, but I was good at those things. So I got this bursary to go and do biology. So I got practical. You know, I was like a bit pragmatic. I was like, well, you know, let's do that. And 
Um, so off I go, went to Bristol to do a biology degree there. And then at that point, I was like, well, now I need to think about how I'm going to make this into a job. So I did applied entomology. And I sort of actually, it was really, um, <laughs> it was really unglamorous. It was livestock pest management. And, you know, like a lot of, you know, people in research, I got really I drilled into sort of this tiny detail of um and, and a subject called fluctuating asymmetry in sheep blowfly strike. So this is the blue bottles, you know, and it, it essentially involved counting spines on the front of a fly's head um, and then measuring the distance and but then re- replicating that across like thousands and thousands and thousands of specimens to work out how asymmetrical they were on their faces and therefore you could then measure whether they were being stressed in their environment by pesticides. It was, you know... It was a world in a world. And then I think I got to the end of a year of that and I thought, I don't know if this is for me. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, so yeah, being a scientist for me was sort of that brush with the world of research and that brush with how you can get drawn into the minutia of detail and you can just keep going in, keep diving in. And there seems no end to that. Um, made me sort of think two things. One is I'm not cut out for this, especially the statistics part of it. I was like, this is going to make me cry every single day of my life. So I need to do something else. But I found it fascinating. I really, so I kind of call myself the lazy scientist. I love the knowledge. I love the subject. I possibly don't have the stamina to do the number crunching. But what I love is kind of stepping out of that world. So this is what was, you know, it was like for me back back in the day when I was doing my degree is I would spend a whole day in a lab staring down a microscope and um, and also smelling a rotting liver because that was the substrate that we bred all these flies on. So, yeah, I didn't get any dates that year. (laughs) And then I go back, you know, to, you know, my housemates and want to share, like, all this incredible stuff. So that was the beginning of... um, I suppose me seeing it as a challenge because none of them were biologists, none of them were scientists. They were all doing like law conversions and stuff like that. And, um, and you know, I think they humored me, but sometimes I got them. <laughs> and those are the moments, you know. <laughs> it's really interesting. Um, we uh, One of the things I've been doing, and I'm a bit like you multifaceted, is teaching UK environmental scientists to communicate better with the public. And, and I think there's um, there's an emotional connection you talked about there, which is you understand the science, but can you find a way to tell it as a story? And one of the things we're doing is working with social scientists at King's College, where uh, a professor, Krista Mayer, I work with, he says that every factual story is a social story. And it's really interesting how scientists like to tease out these are you know, irrefutable facts. Let's just give people the facts and they'll understand things. And yet it's the ability to turn that into an emotion to feel it and I guess that's where you pull those strands together those different things that fascinate you performance and science yeah I guess so um I think part of it is as well that um I don't know if there's a word for this I'd love it if someone was like oh we know exactly what this is Gillian and we can help you um but I really like what I've found is that I'm slow to come out with how I'm going to tell the story and part of that is that I tend to, and I, I'm sure other people at this, I don't think this is unique. Um, I tend to feel like an emotion first. And I then really, it takes a long time to find the words to hang around that emotion. 
And again, like this is a thing that I was like, well, you're not allowed to do this as a scientist. I mean, you know, what's that? You know, emotion. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, I realized that you know I did my degree, and when I was sort of um, most closely aligned with the subject that you know I kind of studied. Um, you know, that's a long time ago now. And I, I realized things have changed. You know, I think when I was doing my degree, it simply wasn't acceptable to imply in any shape or form that animals, individual animals might have personalities. Um, you know, it, it was simply not, it wasn't in the kind of mainstream conversation anyway. There may have been people on the fringes trying to kind of like suggest that, you know, oh, hang on a second, this individual variation we're talking about is could be personality, you know. And um, so, you know, for me, I found initially, I just kind of had to kind of push this, I don't know, this like this approach to one side, which was how does this make me feel? And then how do I communicate how that makes me feel? Um, and so I guess, you know, as I've given myself more and more permission to tell stories like that and, you know, if I'm honest, to my utter amazement, it seems to work, you know. I sometimes, because it's actually quite, it makes you feel quite vulnerable because you're like, now I'm going to have to tell people I really care about this or this makes me feel really sad or actually I find this really, like, just makes me excited. And there's that little part of me that sort of goes, nobody else is going to get this or, you know, what if they think I'm being really stupid or what if this is just funny you know and as in you know not laughing with me but at me and um so it's sort of it's not like a brave and bold kind of like i'm going to tell this story it's almost like you know so i was going about to swear there but you know you know like oh you know i can't like it, it's a challenge it's a real challenge for me to go okay i'm going to tell this how i feel it It's like um, there's a self-selecting audience sometimes, isn't there, for natural history? It's like, and then how we're all seeking ways to cross that divide to the the bulk of the rest of the population who do care. They're just not receiving the story in the way that they can absorb it. And and the social scientist I work with, he has a phrase around, he calls it elephant and rider, elephant and rider. So we think that the rider, I hate this analogy because I don't like riding elephants, but anyway, the rider is the guy in control, the woman in control of the elephant and directing it. And that's the science and that's the facts and that's the head. Um, but actually the elephant is a big and emotional animal, which if it's scared or alarmed or loves something, will go and do what it wants to do anyway. And we have to find ways to communicate with the elephant as well as the rider. It's actually, it's the facts and the emotions wound together. And I guess that's what you said. And uh, it's a lovely thing about the way you do it and the, the warmth in your voice and the intelligence that you credit the audience with. Those are two nice combinations you bring to that. Well, yeah, it's interesting having that reflected back, definitely. Um, you know, eventually we had to mention COVID, didn't we? But, you know, with the pandemic and with, you know, everything that's going on, it, it's, it's um, you know, there was that feeling of like, you know, we can do this together and, you know, we're in this together and it's together, together, together. Um, so this is a great time 
you know, in my view, to be trying to communicate and trying to kind of reach out of that bubble and trying to find different ways of telling stories. And I'm not sure I've cracked it yet. <laughs> I'll let you know <laughs> when I do. <laughs> um, but I am challenging myself to, to, to tell things, do things differently, tell, the, and, you know, and, and because it's sort of like quite emotive, you know, because I'm having to reach into like, how does this make me feel? You know, like um, I sort of feel like on certain days, you know, I, I feel really quite sort of radical. I'm like, no, you know, I know exactly what needs to happen. And it's that thing of like, if everyone just did what I said, I think the world would be an amazing place. And then there are the days where the humility comes back and going, right, I really don't know. I, don't, I haven't got this, you know, <laughs> and um, I need to try and learn and, you know, um, be led, you know, by kind of, um, and this is where my hippie self comes out, but sort of be led by kind of, you know, s something that's bigger than me, basically, mm -hmm. I think is probably the best way to put it. Um, so, yeah, you know, being able to tell different stories, particularly now when, to a certain extent, we've got more of a captive audience, people are, you know, I know restrictions are easing, but there's still a sense of like, you know, what people can do is still limited. Um, and also there may be kind of a thirst and um, a desire for new information, new ways of seeing things. Um, I think it would be safe to say that not, there's very few people that are happy with the status quo or were happy with, you know, what was even before the pandemic, um, you know, whether you were left, right or in the middle of, you know, the kind of political landscape. Um, no one seemed to be kind of like, oh, no, we, you know, everything's exactly perfect the way it is. We're loving it. You know, there's very few people that felt like that. So there may not be agreement on, you know, how to make the world a better place, how to change things for the better. But the fact is everyone wanted some kind of change. So to me, that's, you can work with that, you know. Um, and so have, have you have you seen that then, the necessity of new ways of seeing in your, in your family or friends, people that have been in touch with you about your work? Have you seen that change in them? Yeah, you know what? Like, so I, okay, so this is going to be a bit of a curveball. I, I love um, powerlifting and weight training and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, at one point, like I was sort of doing competitions and stuff. I know it's unlikely. But, yeah, you're right. That's you know. a curveball. That is a curveball. <laughs> yeah, I, I, was, I yeah. never saw that coming. No. You, Colin. no, okay. Not in a million years. Yeah, okay. did we see no, that I, at one point I was really like into Olympic lifting, but it's really scary because you have to do overhead lifts, you know, and oh, I just okay. crashed bars on my shoulders and head a bit too many times. And I decided to let that one go. So powerlifting doesn't involve any overhead lifts. And so, you know, that's something I've done a lot. I've been training quite for quite a few years um with a group um that sort of is they're like a, a, a bunch of like personal trainers and they do these group sessions and their whole shtick is training outdoors so it's not in a gym it's outdoor training it's really great i love it um and it sort of brings together a very kind of unlikely and eclectic mix of people um all kind of you know united by the shared love of lifting heavy stuff basically um and so yeah so you know there's a point to this story um i was having a little chat with so there's a couple of guys um you know some of them are like firemen there's a couple of plumbers there's um, a guy in the navy um so it's a real mix of people and you know they were just kind of talking about a proposed development that's going to basically you know well 
encroach, I suppose, is the word that they would probably want to use, is, you know, encroach an area around this um, reservoir where we train. And, you know, there were there mixed feelings about, you know, is this a good thing? Is it a bad thing? But we got onto the whole build, build, build speech. And it was really interesting hearing, um, you know, the perspective from, especially, you know, guys who work in the, in the building trade. And what I sort of found was they were like, oh, Gillian, you should take this on. Because, you know, they were like, you're the environmentalist. You're the person who cares about nature. They're going to be building this big development. And we know it's going to, like, you know, take out, you know, X number of fields and habitat. I mean, whether or not, you know, there's a biodiversity gain or loss is another story. I didn't even get into that with them. But, um, you know, what I found really fascinating was actually um, – it, it does feel like there was a kind of an awareness that, okay, you know, we need to do something differently. There are alternatives. And, you know, and this is from a bunch of guys, and I'm sure they wouldn't mind me saying, who, you know, aren't necessarily kind of that bothered with, um, you know, environmentalism and, you know, conservation and, you know, whether there's an obscure species of butterfly that's going to be wiped out. You know, that's not the angle they're coming at it from. But... Um, yeah, you know, they they really, I've had more and more conversations like that, which I feel are like outside of the bubble, where it, it, I do think more people than are being counted um, care about, you know, what's going on at the moment and the degradation of our environment. It's just how we tell those stories, you know. Mm-hmm. And certainly communities like in cities, particularly like, you know, black and mis- mixed ethnic communities where statistically they're more likely to be in parts of cities where air pollution is a real issue you know um you know i think if you're talking about mitigating sort of um emissions you know talking about it from an air quality point of view rather than a climate point of view is a different way of of essentially tackling the same problem but making it relevant and relatable to who you're speaking to you know so that to me is like the biggest challenge is like okay who am I talking to today? Who's my audience? Um, and why would this matter to them? There's a really interesting mixture, isn't it, Jill? I really love the way, and that's a great curveball story. I, I'm gonna, I enjoyed that very much. But <laughs> I, I love the the mixture there of you looking at what, what, how do you present an issue that affects people? And the clean air one is a really interesting one, isn't it? People are, are much more impacted in urban and deprived areas, social deprivation. Those are the people most impacted by bad air quality. And they're the people that we uh, often society prioritizes the least. Um, but also that's the way that we tackle what is a much bigger issue, the climate issue, the global heating issue, by getting people to focus on right now, how does it affect me? I, I really love that that combination of things. And, um, and I guess I wanted to talk a little bit about the, the organizations you support because you seem to take an approach that often links people and environment you've been doing some work with cool earth so tell us a bit about that because they're a really fascinating organization yeah so um i mean the the link with cool earth so they're a small a small but you know very effective charity and they work in a handful of communities in countries where you know that, that are sort of predominantly tropical rainforest habitat um their approach I guess you know in a nutshell is to support the the um communities that live in rainforest habitats 
but only really to offer support when it's asked for. Um, you know, because there's, there's, oh gosh, you know, I guess, you know, the charity work can be really problematic. So how you go about supporting communities in other countries, or even here, to be honest, I've learned having just, you know, listened to stories told from, you know, people working at Cool Earth and also Shelterbox, is it's it's quite a sort of, it's, it's a real kind of exercise in diplomacy. Um, and you have to wait to be asked, you know, and it, it's almost like listening to people like, okay, how how can I help you? You know, what help do you need rather than kind of waltzing in and going, right, you know, I'm going to give you homes and I'm going to give you this. and I'm gonna, you know. So Cool Earth are a really interesting charity because that's their kind of MO is um, they will work with communities when they're when the help is asked for. Um, so it's, you know, it's moving away from a model where, you know, they're like, we want to save the rainforest. Oh, we know how to do it. We'll help the communities, you know, in the rainforest, stay living in the rainforest, because then the, the counter argument to that kind of approach is that, well, you know, what you're doing is you're, um, imposing a Western view of what is right and wrong and how people should live and how the world should look. And you are, um, essentially keeping these communities living in, a, you know, in levels of, you know, impo- without access to proper healthcare and all those sort of things. So, so to avoid all of that, they really do just say, right, you know, we'll work with communities when, when we're asked, when we're invited into their into their communities, and then we ask, well, what is it we can do? How can we help you? Um, but you know, this is a great approach, it seems to me, because um, you know, it kind of sets the tone for the relationship. And it empowers the you know the communities that they're working with and individuals especially um, to you know take ownership of like okay what do we want and you know quite often with indigenous communities particularly um, you know it's kind of you know being able to preserve and maintain sort of cultural links to you know their land especially um, but you know and but also to be able to you know preserve culture. And so, you know, all those things combined, the sum total of that is then, well, then they're great guardians and custodians for the habitat. Um, So it's a really interesting approach to climate, you know. um, So Cool Earth, as the name suggests, is a charity about climate action. Um, But they're coming at it in a really different way. One of my heroes, um, environmental heroes, um, was Professor Wangari Mathai, who was the first um, black African woman to receive a Nobel Peace Prize. Um, and she, she, her work was phenomenal. She started like to, towards the late 70s into the 80s, a movement in Kenya called Green Belt Movement. And it was a tree planting sort of campaign, which became a really powerful, almost like political force. Um, and you know, brought about some really significant change um, during the, the height of that movement. But the really interesting approach that she took again was, um, you know, she could she you know she was she she was a very good scientist and you know um, biologist. 
And she could see, you know, even back in the 70s that, you know, well, right, you know, trees are being felled, land is being cleared, soil is being eroded, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so rather than going at it as a, I'm going to get people to plant trees, she would go into communities and it helped that she, I guess she was a woman, she spoke Kikuyu, she was Kikuyu. She'd go into communities and just speak to, you know, rural women and say, right, you know, how's life? And like, well, actually, you know, I'm having to walk really far to get water nowadays and firewood even farther. And by the time I get back, you know, I'm not able to plant. Um, There's no shade for our crops. So, you know, we're having to water things more, the whole thing, you know. And so she identified that actually, if I can make those aspects of life easier um, with the suggestion that let's plant some trees, um, because this could fix some of these problems, it took off. And, you know, it was a grassroots movement where, you know, communities were empowered. So they would say, oh, we want to, you know, we want to plant some trees. How do we do that? You know, where do we get saplings, all that? You know, so it was just rolled out in a very sort of simple structure that didn't require too much top-down management. Um, But it was that idea of going in and asking communities, what do you need? Mm -hmm. Rather than saying, I think this is what you need. What, subtle what, difference what a brilliant example as well and I, I know a friend of mine who's worked in uh, I'm a big fan of Survival International and other organizers but a friend of mine who's worked for them said that uh, they worked on a project where they asked the elders of a particular tribal group what they needed and it was the men were the elders and the men said we need electricity and then they went and asked the women the women said we need to be able to cook <laughs> and, and they were two different things actually mm. they, they were actually how can we continue to live the way we want to live and we and so don't just deliver this thing which you think is going to solve the problem we yeah. actually need we need wood to be able to cook so it's a similar thing but that's a great story Gillian I really I really like that and and so as as we listen to those people then and it's a it's as you rightly point out it's a listening rather than an imposition um and and we struggle to understand in in the way of life we've developed for ourselves here um do you think there are there are lessons to be learned from those people when it comes to the feeling of being custodians of the world around us and, and preserving a, uh, a certain natural heritage around us as well. Do you think there are things we can, we can learn from them? Yeah, I mean, I would love to see um, a different like, perception of the world that we live in. Um, Although I would flip that on its head a little bit because, you know, I think something that really fascinates me um, as someone, I've, you know, I've lived in Britain now for 30 years and, um, you know, I guess I have that kind of outsider's um, lens in the way I see things. And one of the things that fascinates me and I'm, you know, currently researching more into it and looking into it, something I'd like to write about is about British indigenous culture. Because I think quite often, you know, the temptation and because it's easy to do is to look at sort of, you know, First Nations, um, you know, in North America, in Australia, Aboriginal communities, you know, the Maori in New Zealand. And because those cultures, you know, that there's still people holding, you know, the, the, the torch for for indigenous cultures in these different parts of the world, it's easy to look there and go, oh, look, you know, they're still really connected, you know, they still 
see the land as you know a, a living breathing ed- entity it's not just there to be exploited and extracted etc cetera, etc cetera. so it's easy to kind of have that sort of reverence for indigenous culture elsewhere but what i find really fascinating is that existed here it's just that the and i hate you know it's a, it's a powerful word to use but it's true the genocide of you know indigenous British um, people and cultures happened here, but it happened like 2000 years ago. And, you know, I mean, this is still more of a kind of something I'm like, I'm still kind of on the trail trying Mm. to work out if um, there really is some substance here. But my kind of feeling and sense is that the disconnection in at least in this country and in Europe with you know um, indigenous wisdom indigenous knowledge traditional knowledge all that stuff um, happened it just happened a long time ago um, and there's still little relics you know I guess because I live in the West Country I'm a bit more exposed to that but there's some fascinating kind of festivals that still go on in Cornwall you know that you know kind of link back to this time yeah. And, you know, the kind of festivals around different points of the natural cycle, like Beltane and all of that, you know, that to me, again, is a sort of um, an echo from the past where people were much more in tune with natural cycles, with lunar cycles, with, you know, the sun, you know, you've got like Stonehenge, all of that stuff. And, you know, there's still a few keepers of those stories left in this country that, you know, I think... Um, maybe the wrong connotations have been attached to that you know but if you kind of flipped it on its head and thought right you know well what where is the british indigenous culture and i guess you know there's always a danger that starts to sound a bit far right you know but but you know hopefully looking at me you're not going to worry about that too much um but you know i i find that fascinating mm. and i actually think that you know if there is um more knowledge of um history like you know british history in that way you know or actually just a retelling of british history and obviously at the moment that is really topical with the black lives matter movement as well there's a kind of real um really strong sense that you know hang on a second the way these stories have been told need to be retold you know with a different lens but even with british indigenous culture i think the same is true you know that the you know, the, the reason why I think some of this has been dismissed as pagan or, you know, as just kind of, you know, druids and it, it kind of gets laughed at is because that was a, an effective way, you know, once you killed everybody, basically, of of completely discrediting a system mm. of knowledge and interpreting, interpreting the world. Um, I very recently, just a few days ago, visited a farm just on the Devon... Cornwall border, really interesting guy called Matt Chatfield, who is, he's inherited a farm, his family have farmed there for like, I think at least 300 years, if not longer. So he's got, you know, really long, deep roots on um, in that part of the world. He left, you know, as a sort of young man, went to London to find his fortune, came back, you know, his his grandfather was like, don't go into farming, this is not, <laughs> it's di- it's dead on its legs kind of thing. But he has come back. And he's taken over the family farm um, and he's trying to farm it in a kind of, you know, exploring different ways of, um, you know, there's lots of words, different names, not sure which label to use, but wilder farming or wildlife farming, something like that. 
And um, but it was really fascinating because as we walked, you know, a particular area of this farm where the woods are coppiced, you could see the boundaries and you could see how, okay, so in medieval times, it looks like they would have used this area for hazel and this area for alder. And, you know, and then it was like, oh, well, they made clogs out of old. So, you know, they're little relics. And I just think if you peel back these layers of history, um, I think there's a lot of knowledge that's been lost even on British soil, yeah. about, you know, how to work with the land rather than try and dominate it. And I think that that's a story I'm really, I would love to tell and find that's out a, more about. That's a brilliant insight. I really like that. It made me think that um, uh, it's like, what did the Romans ever do for us? But there's like a, the, it was the Romans that kind of told the story of, of how they viewed, you know, all that dru- the way that the Druidic culture is mocked even now today and uh, that strong connection with nature and the powerful relationship or spiritual relationship with nature that is um is a source of ridicule but curiously enough isn't it at a time of covid19 when people are dissatisfied with how we were living and don't want to go back to that and we're starting to think uh, maybe i'm connected with my inner hippie like you did earlier julian so it's like but it's like there's a desire to go back to something that's deeper rooted more meaningful and um and i think you, you really touched upon something there and i hadn't thought about it from a indigenous you know celtic british fringe perspective where those particularly in cornwall as you say it still exists and in wales it does and in scotland it does so yeah really interesting yeah i think it would make um you know the word indigenous a bit more inclusive actually because mm-hmm. at the moment it isn't um and you know in a way like well we all have indigenous culture because you know that's the only way we got here you know (laughs) so it's um it yeah i think i think these are exciting times because i think there is enough knowledge self-knowledge you know um to tell retail stories and i think it's just whether there's the the courage to do it that's lovely. I wanted to take you back. Funny, I'm gonna uh, to um, those simpler times, I suppose. Just maybe in conclusion, I'm not sure. So my partner Gina comes from Guyana in South America, and uh, she describes. I thought I had a great wild childhood, but she describes her childhood as barefooted, a bit wild. Adults didn't know what she was up to, uh, falling out of trees and climbing them, and catching lizards to make them race. And I, I I know you describe your childhood as sort of uh, happily feral, I think was the phrase that you used. And um, and I wonder whether that's also something we need to rekindle in young people, the chance to be more happily feral. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, the irony, obviously, that, you know, we're recording a podcast that we listen on phones. We're doing it on Zoom. I mean, you know, the- <laughs> So the irony is not lost to me, but the technology is so intrusive and it's so addictive. Even I struggle to moderate my use of social media and screen times and internet and all that sort of stuff. I love it for for this, like what we're doing right now. Um, I think, you know, I've got a preteen who might as well be a teenager already. Um, So I've got two teenagers, um, a boy and a girl, 13 and 11. And you know, they are, I think they're really great. You know, I think they're great kids. They're my kids. Um, you know, but as they get older and as I've kind of, you know, had to just, you know, relax the rules around screen use, especially to be honest, during lockdown, um, I've just really noticed like how 
drawn in they've become. Because, you know, having access at the moment in the way that they do to devices and to, you know, social media platforms, I, I just think, you know, we can't tell them, like, you've, you, how much screen time to use when we can't moderate the use ourselves. You know what I mean? So we are really just setting them, them up for um, a whole new way of connecting with the world, which is via screens. Um, and I think one of the things I'm really, really passionate about at the moment and only just trying to figure out how I can, in my own little way, support organizations that can really have the influence is um, trying to blur that boundary between urban and, and countryside and rural and make like um, identify areas in cities like Birmingham and Bristol and London and Manchester where, um, you know, there's sort of good, you know, there's already a good sort of, you know, potential for, I don't want to say greening because that sounds like it's gentrifying, but I just mean, you know, creating habitat where it becomes just part and parcel of an urban space to have areas which are um, rewilded for want of, a, want of a better word, you know. Um, that's something I would love to see more and more of. And I know that people are doing good work in that, so this is not my ideal. I'm by no means a pioneer in it. But I just feel like that, you know, if I'm going to put my time and energy into things at the moment, that's one thing I really want to try and support is um, making it so that, you know, um, people of all backgrounds who live in cities don't have to travel some great distance to go and experience something that is akin to a bit of wildness, you know, that they can do that in cities as well. And I think it's possible. You know, we see it in other cities. So, yeah, it is possible. So thanks, Julian. You bring a wonderful mix. Uh, it's kind of warmth to it, which is naturally your personality, but steel too, which I really like, determination and uh, that, uh, I don't mean anger, but uh, a determination to see the right things happen for our landscapes our young people all of us really and it's a it's a wonderful mix of qualities so thank you so much for our time thank you Gillian. thanks so much for having me Thank you for listening to Beneath the Stream. Um, we'd really love you to go onto iTunes or Google Podcasts or Podbean or wherever it is you listen to our podcast and give us a five-star rating and leave us a review and also tell us what it is you want us to uh, explore in future. Thanks so much.